Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey, welcome back, boys and girls. Another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. I'm really excited about this one. I was a Wharton lecturer a few years ago, and the youngest professor ever to reach tenure became a friend, and he is now way beyond that. He is famous and for all the right reasons. His name is Adam Grant. He is an expert, as you know, if you don't know him already. Motivation, success, leadership. His first book was Give and Take. That was great. It, it was Why Helping Others is Critical to Success. Second book was Originals on Rejecting Conformity, Championing New Ideas and Originality. And his latest book in 2017 was Option B, with co-authored by Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook, and sort of overcoming life setbacks and resilience. And it was a powerful book. He now has his own podcast about work-life balance, a recent one with Brad Stevens of the Celtics Culture. Sounds great. And then, of course, he is a consultant for companies, you name it. NFL uses them, Pixar uses them. Google, U.S. Army, a writes for the New York Times. He's done it all. So listen, this is a rollicking podcast. We're friends. We talk about our own negotiation history in front of classes. We negotiate against each other, what we learned, our own experiences on how we get better, and just talking about ways to lead, what goes into success, the success of the Eagles, the success of the Celtics, even his own career as a diver. So without further ado... Enjoy this Business of Sports podcast with the great Adam Grant. Adam and I began our relationship by negotiating against each other. And uh, was I kind of an inspiration for you writing about uh, people in your books that are uh, <laughs> are tough negotiators, Adam? <laughs> inspiration is the wrong word. Intimidation? Maybe. Oh, come on. You know, it's, <laughs> Andrew, it's funny because I, I remember I when I got here, I had been teaching negotiations, I think, for three years. And I'd, I'd been a negotiator for a few years in, in the advertising world before that. And I kept getting this comment from, from students in, in the mid-course evaluations and then again in the, the final course evaluations saying, you know, we love negotiating against each other and then debriefing and learning what we could have done better and what the evidence says. But we really want to see you negotiate. And I, mm -hmm. I just avoided it every semester. And then one <laughs> semester, they, they just they wouldn't let it go. And I, I thought it was a good point, right? We should, we should demonstrate some of the skills we're trying to teach. And so I reached out to a professor. He said no. <laughs> and then I heard about you, and I heard you were teaching a negotiation class. And right. I thought, all right, this, this, guy, this guy's got to be willing to do it because, you know, he was, he was in an executive role for the Packers for years. He negotiated all the time. He's not going to be afraid like a bunch of us academics. And so I, I think I had cold emailed you, and you said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And we did it in front of our class, uh, my class, and I believe your class uh, at different times where, yes, Adam Grant and I negotiated in front of students at Wharton and at UPenn. And what are your recollections, uh, before I tell you mine, of our experience doing that? Well, I remember a few things. The first thing was that you have a killer poker face and you just give nothing <laughs> away. And, you know, I, I guess a lot of my negotiating is about relationship building and I would, I would put a bid out there and it would just, it would, it would be like it fell into a black hole. <laughs> was it, was and that I remember, go ahead. Is that just your personality and style? I don't think I've ever asked you about this. 
I remember thinking, wow, this is really a nice guy. And my experience with these hard-ass agents over the years, whether I was whether with the team or when I was an agent negotiating against teams, was like, nobody's this nice. You know, nobody's really this nice. <laughs> they just want to get to yes and do it in a way that with some edge. And I'm like, this guy's really nice. And my other recollection is we got done and whatever result we had, we kind of opened it up to the students to critique, just like we critique them. And I remember somebody, I believe, in your class, I wouldn't, could have been mine, who just kind of said to me, you're kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You do remember, uh, that yes. I, I, I felt triumphant <laughs> because you, were. you know, I think, I think you won that negotiation. And I, I felt like, you know, well, at least I won the class. you did indeed and I learned from that too I mean listen and you can comment on this when I joined the Green Bay Packers I was a young negotiator for a you know one of the storied teams in sports and I got admitted Adam I did something that I really learned from and I regret now maybe I didn't learn based on our interactions in front of the Wharton students but (laughs) <laughs> I tried to win and I wanted to show whoever it was. We didn't even have an owner. We had a board of directors, executive committee, CEO that look, look at me, you know, I'm winning these negotiations. And boy, was that the wrong thing to do? Because number one relationships, like you said, agents were feeling like I was getting over. And more importantly, because these are sort of two ladder negotiations with agents and players, players were feeling like I was getting over. And that was not good for our team. And it would come back to haunt me because they would be two, three years later, like, look at the markets passing me by. Look what Brandt did to me. And of course, I changed. I made sure that they felt good about negotiations later in my career with the Packers. So even without reading your books, (laughs) I was able to learn from that. Well, I, I think it's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a realization that, that too many people have too late. Uh, and, you know, one, one of my hopes in becoming a professor was that you know, we, could, we could actually create experiences in the classroom that would, you know, that would prepare people for those situations before they made the, the mistakes when, when the stakes were higher. And right. I, remember, uh, I remember one class where I had a guy, we, at the end of the semester, we would vote for the most ruthless negotiator. Uh, <laughs> we also did, you know, the most cooperative and the most creative and the best actor, but the most ruthless was the one that really distinguished who had burned bridges over right. the course of all these, these back and forth negotiations. And I, I had a guy who not only won in his section, he won in the other section I was teaching, even though they never <laughs> negotiated against him because they heard about what, what a competitive jerk he was. And the, the guy is now the general manager of a professional sports team. And huh. he said, you know, I approached this whole class like everybody was, you know, an agent out to get me. And I, I really right. took advantage of some people and I learned that you're going to have repeat interactions. You know, it's actually okay to lose the battle to win the war. But on this note, I get this question and you're more expert at answering it than I am. How do you balance being nice, being reasonable, being a good person to work with, but not feeling like other people can take advantage of you. Well, I think, I think a huge part of that is setting boundaries. So, yeah, I right. think in, in work overall or in life, 
you know, you want to be thoughtful about who you help and how you help and when you help so that, you know, you're, you're acting for the benefit of others, but not doing it at a major personal cost. And in negotiating specifically, you know, I, I guess this is something I had to, I had to work on a lot because as <laughs> you so kindly pointed out, my impulse was, you know, was yes to my own detriment and, you know, right. just wanted to make the other side feel like they want. And, you know, when I, when I first started negotiating advertising contracts, I, uh, I managed to be the first person in the 40 year history of my company to give away money that was on the books from the previous year because people who weren't happy with their ad, they just gave them discounts, even though that was a <laughs> violation of the contract I signed. So it was not a good start. And so, you know, I had to, I guess, I had to get better at sincerity screening uh, and figure out, you know, in, in the language that I end up using much later in give and take, okay, who's a giver, who's a taker, who's a matcher? Uh, right. You know, is, is this person a giver where they're generous, they have my best interest at heart, uh, or are they more of a taker where they're just trying to get ahead in this interaction and they don't care what happens to me? And, yeah, you know, most people are somewhere in the middle and they approach a lot of interactions with this matching mindset of, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Right. And I think what I, what I had to learn to do was whenever I was dealing with somebody who, who was more of a, a taker or, or incredibly aggressive and competitive, I had to shift in matching, in the matching mode and, and really meet them where they were and show that I could play hardball too. And I had, I had some fun experiences of doing that, but I, I think this is one of the things that you excel at. So I'd love to hear how you, you navigated it. And I guess we could compare and, and see if we stumbled on the same tactics. One of the things I love about your writings and your speeches is the willingness to show some empathy and willingness to show some vulnerability in negotiations. Because as you said, it is so, can be so transactional. And you do for me, I do for you. Let's get it over with. And there's a story that I'll never forget. There was a great agent who unfortunately passed last year named Eugene Parker. He represented the top players in the league. And among them, Deion Sanders and Curtis Martin and recently Larry Fitzgerald. And he had a lot of our players at the Packers, which was fortunate because I loved dealing with them. One year, we were about to start training camp, and I had had interactions with him on our chop draft pick, and it just wasn't going well. And not that he was being unreasonable, just the market wasn't shaping up. We didn't know where to go. The night before training camp, our personnel director at the Packers, Mark Hatley, says to me, Andrew, I'm going to go play golf for the last time. He meant the last time before training camp started in the grind and no time to, to do anything else. And he said, do you need any help with that contract? I said, no, I'm good. I'm good. Long story short, six hours later, Mark died. And I said, oh, my God. And it was a very tough time. And. I had to get this pick done to get him into training camp the next day. And I was frazzled. I know what to do. And I was mourning and I was grieving and I was crying. And Eugene called and he said, hey, 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 do not think one minute about this contract. You do what you got to do. You grieve. I'll come in there when you're ready. We'll do a deal. It'll be reasonable. As long as I live, I'll never forget that. Because uh, he wow. showed empathy at, at the right time, and I craved working with him from that moment on. Wow. Well, that, that phrase at the right time, I think, is so key. Right? Because I've, I've had the opposite problem of, of showing it at the wrong time. Uh, I, remember, <laughs> okay. uh, I remember negotiating my, uh, my first 
this is my first uh, lease on a car. And just finding out after the fact that I way overpaid and, you know, saying, okay, I can't ever face my students again unless I've <laughs> been able to master this. And so the, the, next, the next time I had a chance to, to negotiate, went into a car dealer and you know, I, I waited for the quote and I was ready. And I just said, look, you know, I, I think what you're doing is called anchoring, where you come out with an extreme offer and then, you know, you hope that pulls me to your side. That's not what you're doing, is it? <laughs> the, guy, the guy stopped in his tracks and he, he paused for a second and then he said, I knew I couldn't fool you. Here's the real first offer. Wow. And, you know, wow. I, found, I found it just very gently labeling the behavior and then testing my understanding and saying, hey, you know, this is this, is this, this technique that you seem to be using, but surely you wouldn't be the kind of person who would do that. You know, it's it just made it so clear immediately that you, it didn't make sense to play this, you know, competitive game of sharks and that we might actually want to have a human conversation. And so I guess I was, I was trying to appeal to their, their inner Eugene Parker, if that makes any sense. Yeah. What do you tell students, people with younger people with, I guess for lack of a better phrase, no leverage in their negotiations, this could be for a lease, this could be for a job, where the employer, even if it's a you know a Wall Street bank, they say, "Well, you're going to make X. That's what all first years make." And they really want to say, "Well, I'm a little different." Or, "What if I get more <laughs> vacation, take a little less money?" And and their response is always, "That's our policy." And even in you know dealing with customer service, it's always, "That's our policy." What do you tell people to sort of? break through some of that if they can. Well, I don't have a lot of patience for policies. I, I think that, you know, there are lots of idiosyncratic situations right. that deserve customized treatment. The challenge is to get the other person to agree with that. And so I've got, I've got a couple ways of dealing with that. The first one is I once had a, a student who had offers from two consulting firms and one was paying a few thousand dollars more than the other. And the student right. wanted to go to the firm that was paying less but, but didn't want to have to you know, take a hit in salary. And I said, look, you're never going to negotiate this solo because they've given a standard package to everyone. What you need to do is you need to build a coalition with others who are in the same situation and mm. negotiate as a group so that the firm knows they're going to lose you all if they don't match. And that student was able to find a few others and they brought a united proposal and they said, look, we all would rather join you if you can just match the offer of this other company. And the firm did it right on the spot. Because that way it was totally consistent with policy. So in strength in numbers in that case? In that case. In other cases, uh, my favorite negotiating strategy is actually to ask for advice. Hmm. So, you know, you, you're negotiating with a company uh, or it could be a sports team. And, you know, you, you go to the, the person who you think is most likely to, to understand the situation. And you say, look, here's my goal. You know, I, I know you're an expert negotiator. I would love your guidance. You know, what do you think I should do? And usually three things happen. Number one is flattery. We all love to be asked. We love it when people ask us for advice, right? Right. Uh, to paraphrase ben, ben Franklin, we all admire the wisdom of people who come to us for advice. Because let's face <laughs> right. it, they have really good taste. They need to come to me. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you put the person in a good mood. And then secondly, perspective taking. You force them to look at the problem from your vantage point. 
and think about why this is important to you and, and how to make it happen. And then, you know, usually from, from the, you know, the flattery and the perspective taking comes, if not straight out advocacy, Hey, I'll, you know, let me help you negotiate this. It's some really good suggestions on what you should do. And I think that very often there's a lot of research on this by Katie Lilly and Kristen, her colleagues, which shows that as long as you're genuinely interested in learning from the other person's advice, you have more influence by asking for advice than just going in and trying to negotiate hardball. That's great advice. I mean, to really seek out, is it ego you're seeking out? Because that's people, you know, people love talking about themselves, right? Yeah, I think some of it is ego. I think some of it is also just appealing a little bit to their ingenuity. Right. So I remember I had a, I had a student actually in my, I think it was my first, yeah, it was my first negotiation class I ever taught. I had a student who was working at a pharma company and they were, uh, they were closing down the plant she worked at and she was being transferred halfway across the country and she wouldn't, she wouldn't have been able to do her degree and keep working at the same time because of the distance. And so she found this out literally a few minutes before our first class. And at the end of the class, she came up and she said, you know, unfortunately I have to drop the class. And she described the situation for me. And I said, look, this is, Eddie, this is a perfect time to, you know, to, to try out some negotiating skills. But you don't even have to negotiate. All you have to do is find somebody with authority or responsibility and explain your dilemma and ask for their advice on how to solve it. Hmm. And she reached out to a, a senior leader who had a vested interest in keeping her in the company and also in her education and development and said, here's the dilemma. And the leader said, oh, we actually have a, a company jet that goes back and forth between these two cities a few times oh. a week. You can have a seat whenever, whenever you want. And wow. she basically rode the jet to her MBA. <laughs> Ingenuity, indeed. Yeah. Never, never would have happened if she didn't ask. And, you know, in so many of those cases, it's less about negotiating. And it's, it's more about just asking the right question to the right person. Right. Spinning us to sports in our remaining minutes, I know our time is limited. The, you and I are both in Philadelphia, the team that just won the Super Bowl. They lose their best player. Go Eagles! They, they <laughs> fly Eagles, fly, right? Uh, they lose their best player. They lose their best offensive lineman. They lose their most versatile running back. They lose their best uh, linebacker. And here we are talking about Super Bowl. I've written and talked about their success a lot, you know, knowing Howie Roseman and Doug Peterson, who was our backup in Green Bay so well. But your impressions, it just seemed the the word resiliency just kind of just screams at you when you look at that team and and sort of keeping it together through adversity. What were your reactions to it? Yeah, you know, I, I've known Howie for, for a number of years and yeah. You know, I think there's there's a pretty nice underdog story that runs through his trajectory along along with the Eagles mm-hmm. as well. Right. Uh, you know, I think that that in you know in, in both in Howie's case and in the team's case, right? There's there's a chip on your shoulder. You've got something right. to prove. Uh, you feel like other people are are underestimating you. And I think that in some ways, that, actually, that has a few effects. One is uh, you know our, our own uh, Samir Nurmagomed at, at Wharton has published uh, some. Uh, sorry, I'll say that differently. Our own Samir Noah Mohammed at Wharton has some very cool research showing that when other people underestimate you, if if they're not highly credible, if they don't know you, and they can't really judge you accurately, that that only gives you more fuel to to play right. harder, to coordinate better, 
And then I think the second effect is there's a long history of psychology of, of risk-taking that says when you're facing a near-certain loss, you're willing to go out on a limb and try things that nobody who's in a good position to win would ever dare risk. Hmm. And, you know, I think you, you see that all the way in the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> How many people in Doug Peterson's shoes would say, all right, you know what? Let's try to throw a touchdown pass to Nick Foles. Right. That, that is not right. a sentence that I even thought would exist right, in all of human history. And yet, you know, when nobody expects you to win, those are exactly the moves that you go for. And I think part of what's, what's interesting to me about that is that, you know, in that, in that individual play, in, in those calls, it feels really risky. But in the long run, the biggest risk is to never take a risk. And over a whole portfolio of decisions, you need to call some risky plays along with some safe plays in order to have the best shot at winning. So that, that for me, stuck out right away. Yeah, I think on the, on the chip on the shoulder, absolutely. And your story resonates with me because I think one of my proudest moments in my life was when I got into Stanford in high school and people looked at me like, did your dad buy a library or something? What, what, what's going on? Like, what, Wait, you what? got into Stanford? Really? How could that be? Yeah, and I'm <laughs> like, that made me feel so good that they, they thought, you know, something happened where it was an engineered for me, and, I, and I, I knew nothing like that happened. The other thing about Howie, real quick, I just told him after it all, I said, because this chip on the shoulder thing, I said, Howie, just enjoy this. Because it's, I didn't want him walking around saying, see, I told you, everybody, F you. You know, I just said, just enjoy it. Just, I know you're feeling all that, but just enjoy it. And I don't know if he could or couldn't without sort of shaking his fist against the wind and say, I told you to everybody. But uh, I just think they're, they're a story of resilience that's amazing. I think so, too. And, you know, it's, it's been interesting to watch the parallels between the Eagles and then what the Celtics have done this year in basketball. Right, right. Where you see, you see Gordon Hayward star go out in the first game of the season, and everybody thinks they're toast. And they just go on a tear, and, and for the first, what, 20, 30 games, they have one of the, the best two records in basketball. They stay right. strong all season, and, and they lose Kyrie Irving. And now they're screwed. Right. And here, the, right. here they are with a three to one series lead on our uh, on our Sixers, and you know I think some of that is is Brad Stevens is a masterful coach. Uh, you know I've had a chance to observe him and, and work with him a little bit. I, I think he's brilliant, and some of that is uh, these players also feeling like, hey, we're underdogs, we've got nothing to lose. It's amazing how it can happen the way it does in team sports, and and I guess the, that's sort of the last subject is how do you find those guys because here we are. We just spent, uh, we in football just spent months analyzing these draftees that were picked last weekend and thousands of man hours and tens of millions of dollars scouting these few guys who come on these teams in the past few days. So <laughs> you're not in that business. But if you were advising a team, whether basketball, football, baseball, all the team sports, Forget about the measurables and all that. What are you advising them to look for? What kind of traits will make the team better for the players? Well, I think, I mean, I think a lot of it boils down to character. I think, right. you know, it's not always easy to assess, although it's something we've been trying to do in, in the world of, of, of business and work for about a century now. And we, yeah, we, we have some, some ways of getting a little bit closer to a signal in the noise. But, 
you know, when I think about character, you know, I'm, I'm interested in drafting players who are givers, not takers, you know, who, who say I'm here to make the team better, not just to, you know, gain glory or wealth for myself. Uh, I'm looking for players with grit who, you know, are probably going to overachieve relative to their raw physical talent. And I'm looking for players with humility who say, you know, I don't think I'm the best. I'm actually trying to get better. And I always have something to learn. And that means when, you know, when something goes wrong, I point the finger inward, not outward, and ask what I can do to improve moving forward. And I would love to see, I know a lot of scouts, you know, they're, they're kind of looking for these qualities already. But I think we could get more precise about saying, all right, what are the real indicators that somebody is, you know, is, is a giver with grit and humility? And how do we screen out the, the narcissistic takers who are, who are lazy and selfish? And I, I think we can get more scientific about that because, you know, as, uh, as our colleague Kate Massey often points out, uh, drafting is a forecasting tournament. Mm-hmm. You're trying to make a prediction about somebody's future performance. And the only way you can get better at that is to keep score and say, all right, you know, let's, let's have everybody bet on every player in the draft. And then we'll find out who made the best bets. And then we can work backward and either give them more responsibility or figure out what those super forecasters are doing that everyone else should learn. And finding those traits out, I know we all talk about research and these teams interview them and they talk to their college coaches and maybe their strength coaches and maybe their high school coaches. Are there little hacks to find out who are these people beyond, you know, the 10 minute interview or the the talk with the coach? Yeah, I think, you know, I've studied this the most with with the give or taker dynamics. So, you know, one, one thing that you want to do is, when you talk to other people about an athlete, you want to, you want to recognize that most of those people like any reference check are motivated to, you know, to really give a positive spin. Right. And so you have to, you have to force them to be a little more honest. And one way to do that is to give them a forced choice between two negatives. So I might ask, you know, what's, what's more likely for this player, Uh, you know, being a little bit maybe selfish and, you know, kind of all about me, or being, you know, totally focused on the team to the point of getting taken advantage of by teammates. And if I set those up right, it's not clear which one is the correct answer. Right. And so you tend to get the more, the more honest answer. Uh, and then, you know, I also, I also want to see just how much do they do of the, the things that aren't measurable, right? Like nobody, nobody tracks in basketball diving for, for loose balls. Uh, you know, in, in football, I want to know, are the injured players you know, still showing up at practice? Uh, mm-hmm. And are they still cheering the team on? And I want to I look at basically what are they doing when no one's watching? Because that's when you tend to reveal your values and your character. Right. I remember one year quickly in Green Bay, we drafted a fifth-round defensive lineman from Iowa named Aaron Campman. And that defensive line group was a little squirrely. <laughs> but we threw him in that group. <laughs> The he's a, here. He is a backup down the line player. The character of that group shot up like wildfire when he got in it. And you mentioned something about character. Character counts because it counts for the positive. It counts for the negative. You take a bad character guy, especially team sport. They can infect. They can infect, especially young players. So uh, I totally agree on that. Yeah, you know, as, we have uh, we have a lot of research on. On the, the sort of the bad apple spoils the barrel effect, which yeah. says that in, in most teams, bad is stronger than good. 
where all it takes is, you know, one taker to destroy a culture of giving. But if you put one giver in a team, you don't get this explosion of generosity and self selflessness. More often people are like, great, that person can do all the grunt work. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, it's all the more critical to weed out the bad qualities uh, than it is sometimes to, to try to draft or select on the good ones. I know your time's running out. I would be remiss to not mention you have an athletic background yourself. Did I hear somewhere you were a competitive diver that uh, aspired to be a professional basketball player as well? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, in middle school, I got cut from the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade basketball teams. Uh, <laughs> and finally gave up on that. And I, I appreciate that you're, you're calling diving an athletic endeavor. <laughs> oh, yeah. It attracted, oh, yeah. you know, all the people who were not athletic enough for the major sports. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a little non-contact myself now running and biking. At least I hope it's non-contact. Yeah, non-contact, but also the, the purest sports where your performance is all you. Right, right. I know you got to run. Where can people find you on the on the socials? What do you have coming up? I know you have your own podcast. If you want to talk about it, or any books you're working on now. Oh sure. So uh, yeah, we just finished season one of Work Life with Adam Grant. Uh, I basically decided I wanted to go into some of the most unconventional places around and look at what they've mastered that I wish everyone knew about making work suck a little bit less. And uh, maybe for your audience, uh, the episode on the problem with all-stars would be fun. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I had Shane Battier and Michael Lewis and uh, Brad Stevens, and I went to the Butler basketball team to see how they build a culture of humility and whether that maybe even substitutes for a lack of talent, which picks up on a lot of the, the character themes we were talking about. So that was, That's uh, perfect that was for this block. audience, yep. And where can people find you on the socials? Oh, uh, let's see. <laughs> Uh, adamgrant.net and then twitter and facebook and linkedin are at adam m grant all right adam so i'm negotiating right now uh this there will be a part two i guess that's not a negotiation that's a demand (laughs) 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 and for people who don't know adam and i are recording this on the phone although uh, less than two miles away from each other so we will do it in person part two andrew brand adam grant coming up adam I'm not going to let you respond to that even. So <laughs> thanks no, so much. No, Andrew, wait a minute. Hold on. I have to respond. I think what we should do is we should solicit some topics for your listeners for us right. to negotiate. Okay. Call to action. Topics for negotiation for part two of the Business Sports Podcast with Adam, Bur- Adam Grant, Andrew Brandt. Wow. We can do some with the names too. Um, <laughs> I think there's a podcast in the making there. Uh a Brant v. Grant, signing off. Series. Brant <laughs> v. Grant. Thanks so much for your time. I know it's a busy time for you as you got all these things going. Everyone check out the Work Life Podcast with Adam Grant. And thanks, my friend, for being with me. Really enlightening stuff. Thanks, Andrew. Enjoyed it as always. Hey, really hope you enjoyed that interview with Adam Grant. He's terrific. He talks about why people are successful or not and givers and takers. You can see it through the theme there about negotiations, about the right way to do things and the right way to treat people. Uh, What a voice to have. Really hope you enjoyed it. Listen to all my podcasts on iTunes. Give us a good rating on Stitcher. Tune in RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcasts. Join the business of sports and subscribe. 
thank you for it. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, and I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.